Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, if you're anything like me, you've got a harassing headache trying to keep up with the data front line from privacy to consent to the arms race around universal IDs and how the trading and management of data will play out with all these regulatory pressures on the horizon. So we've enlisted a New Yorker for a quick helicopter view and digestible breakdown for those of us not deeply embedded in the giant labyrinth of data and machines. With us today is Nick Jordan, the former director of product management at Adobe and founder of New York-based narrative, a firm with big ambitions to democratise data access across markets in contrast to the current course for closed proprietary systems, platforms and walled gardens. If I've lost you already, you're not alone. I was actually trying to sound like I know something. But hence, we have Nick Jordan for a possibly contrarian but instructive view on where everything to do with data, brands, customers and audiences is headed. So welcome, Nick Jordan. Let's start with a kicker, shall we? Is there a revolution coming in how data can be captured, used, traded and valued in the next few years because of these looming pressures from regulators and demands for a cleaner, privacy-first data ecosystem? We've got it here. The regulators are moving in Australia, Nick, and I know there's lots happening in the US. So um, this revolution that we talk about in data, are are we overstating it or is it this big? And welcome, by the way, from all the way from New York. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. I I don't know if there's a revolution. I mean, all all technology kind of happens incrementally. Are things changing? For sure. You know, will things look different three years from now than they did three years ago? Absolutely. You know, is it going to be night and day? Are we going to wake up one day and be like, oh, everything's different? I, I, I really don't think so. And, and I think, you know, especially around the advertising and marketing use cases, you know, a lot of the companies, be it Apple or Google, have kind of telegraphed what they're doing. I think the ecosystem at large hasn't figured out how they're going to react to that. And so it may seem scary. It may seem revolutionary. But at the end of the day, I don't think we're going to wake up, you know, 18 months from now and, and think about the good old days when we used to use data and everything's going to change, you know, change overnight. It's it's going to be evolutionary, not revolutionary. But but things are for sure changing um, and, and people are going to have to adapt. Well, I might, have to, I might have to take you up on that, though, Nick, because certainly in Australia at the moment, um, well, it was until, what, a month ago, there was a lot of freakout going on about the end of third-party cookies, and it had a lot of companies who were geared that way to go, what the hell are we going to do now? So the, at least the feeling of, uh, of big change looming is in, is in Australia. You think that's overplayed? I mean, I, I think the feeling is here, too. And I think, quite frankly, the writing's been on the wall for the cookie for the last, I don't know, 10 years, probably. I mean, a cookie is a terrible mechanism. I don't know why we've ever been using the, the cookie at all. Um, but but again, I think, you know, the if cookie is a proxy for identity, I don't think identity is going to go away. I think it'll move to a different mechanism. So, you know, be it a hashed email address or, or be it some sort of identifier that's that's generated from one of the big behemoths or, or a startup that's trying to create identity, there will be an identity layer. It's just going to look a little bit different. I think the irony of all of it is, you know, it, it may become even more personal, right? It, we, we may go from using an anonymous set of characters that are represented by a cookie in your browser to using your first name, last name and postal address to actually identify people across across devices and across publishers. 
but but identity's not going away. Well, on identity though, Nick, there is a big race to work out what is next. And, you know, we're seeing all sorts of companies and, and initiatives come out to try and replace the cookie. Now, you, you think a lot of noise that's coming out of, say, the, the ad tech and martech sector around user ID and user ID vendors, for, for that matter, and all around this sort of new privacy first and transparent data management stuff, is hubris. You, you, you say it's rhetoric and sort of awashed with too many mis- mystical black boxes. What's your concerns around that? I mean, you really don't want to let any one company control this because, you know, with a with a black box or, or with a walled garden, you end up with a, you know, a, a, a less vibrant ecosystem. You, you end up with a, a bunch of people that can't actually do what they want to do. I mean, frankly, it'd, it'd be ideal to have some standards and, and non-commercial standards to, to actually get us there. You know, I actually think the things that the trade desk are doing are, are fairly well received because it's open. And companies like LiveRamp that are effectively trying to monetize their, their identity layer largely because of their existing place in the ecosystem, people are looking at it and say, you know, do we really want to we really want to tie ourselves to these types of technologies? I mean, short of identity, I, I look at, you know, Google in particular, but I think you could say pr- probably Facebook and Apple as well, like the more complicated the ad tech ecosystem gets, the more they benefit. I mean, they, they, they laugh all the way to the bank. I, I look at the Loomiscape or I look at sort of, you know, all of the moving pieces across identity and creative and targeting and measurement. And, and you know, no one person can understand any of it. Certainly the, the, the agencies can't tie it all together. And so all it does is funnel more dollars into the walled gardens where you can get, you know, something from, you know, one, you know, one solution from, from everyone. And so the open ecosystem of the internet is hurt by the fact that we make it so complicated that you need to have a PhD to, to, to understand how anything works. And so fundamentally, I think there needs to be a, you know, something closer to a standard, be it from you know, a large entity like the Trade Desk or the IAB or someone else, but sort of putting it in the hands of someone that's trying to commercialize it, I think is ultimately counterproductive. Let's move back to what you're talking about in terms of the different um, initiatives out there and identity. And so, you know, you talked about LiveRamp uh, versus Trade Desk. One's open sourced, I guess, is your point with Trade Desk. The other one, LiveRamp, is, I guess, a former data broker. And, and you're saying that that sort of history, that legacy, is sort of not the ideal for where we're going for, for the identity. So just give us a sense of what the different services you see out there and the different initiatives around replacing cookies and identity, how and who should the market here in Australia, at least, be looking at what should they be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not here to pick a winner, but I think I think the things that you you have to ask is you know are you know is the is the solution I'm choosing you know to benefit me and the larger ecosystem, or is it meant to benefit you know the the, the person or the company that created the solution? Uh, you know, I think you have to look at the the track record of the business that's creating it. Um, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about data brokers out there creating these solutions is from, from a pure compliance and regulatory perspective, data brokers really remove the, the transparency into the data supply chain, right? Just like ad networks of old, you know, as a buyer, you didn't really know where the media you were buying was coming from. And as a seller, you didn't know who you was buying your media. If, if you, you know, and, and there was largely not a huge regulatory aspect to that, you know, it was it was it was a market that, you know, was was devoid of worrying about privacy and, and compliance. When you bring that to data and suddenly you have this big regulatory piece of it saying, yeah, I actually don't know where the data came from and I don't really know where it went to. It doesn't solve any of the regulatory problems. And so having a data broker create a solution around identity and say it's going to fix all of the problems that were largely put in place to, to, to fix a, a privacy compliance and regulatory framework, frankly, just doesn't make any sense. 
How many players in the market now are in that bucket, Nick, that are sort of either data brokers or don't have transparency and where the data, individual data comes from and how it's being used? How, how big and widespread is that problem? Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, literally every every day there seems to be another dozen companies that are doing something around this. I mean, that's and again, this goes back to my point about you know the the Googles of the world laughing all their way to the bank. It's so complicated. Like I, I pay attention to this space, and I for the life of me couldn't tell you couldn't name the the twenty or thirty different companies that are trying to solve identity. Which kind of goes back to my point about we really need a standard. Um, and maybe it's not one standard. Maybe it's maybe it's three standards. You know, I, I think competition is healthy. I think innovation is healthy. I don't think having you know an existing player with a closed ecosystem sort of rule identity is is, is good. Uh, frankly, we're early innings with a lot of this, and and, and and Google pushing back the the deprecation of cookies, you know, another eighteen months doesn't exactly make the game any shorter. You know, I think we'll see a lot of procrastination as as humans are oft, often doing. Uh, and so we do we do that really well, don't we? Yeah, twelve months from now we'll be having the same conversations we were having three months ago because we think it's all we think it's all going away. Yes. And so I, you know, I, I don't know that there's a winner in all of this. If if I actually had to bet, and 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 I do like to do a little bit of uh, a gambling here and there. Uh, I would actually say that Google is actually probably not going to completely get rid of the cookie. They're going to replace it with something that looks more akin to to the, their uh, Android advertising ID in the mobile ecosystem. You know, I, I think again, I've said the, the cookie is a very bad technology. We should have stopped using it a, a decade ago. Going to a place where there's no you know identifier, be it pseudo anonymous or fully anonymous, to, to use it all doesn't seem like the right solution. I think there's a, there's a happy medium somewhere, which is, you know, allow for some level of identification, even if it's, you know, not just pseudo-anonymized, but maybe, you know, brought into cohorts like like they've, you know, talked about with um, with, with with Flock and the other, you know, 1700 bird analogies that, that go into their technologies, um, but do it in a way that you don't, you know, completely throw out the baby with the bathwater and roll it out in a way where people can adapt over a period of time. Now. I don't think Apple follows suit, and so you're always stuck with the iPhone Safari c- conundrum there. But it's you know there's no mistaking why Apple's doing it. They you know want people to buy more stuff in their app store, and if a if a if an app is ad supported, Apple doesn't see any of that revenue. If you have to pay ninety nine cents or a dollar ninety nine to pay an app, you know Apple gets thirty percent of it, and so it's not the you know it's it's a, 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 a mostly to benefit Apple and not because they have this great pursuit of you know, privacy and creating a better, you know, world for people to live. Well, in. that's certainly what they're telling the punters, though, correct? Sure. But I like, I mean, that's a great PR team. Like, if, like, like, okay, you know, there's a thing that we want to do. It sounds anti-competitive. Let's make it sound like we're actually benefiting the consumers. Like, that's a great message. It's all bullshit. Why so? They they build their phones in China. They store their data, their, their Chinese users' data in China and give the keys to the Chinese government. They don't give the rat's ass about privacy. Right, it's like if you literally look at their behaviors of what they do to to support the iPhone ecosystem, and then you look at the message they drive around privacy around advertising, which has you know is you know incredibly benign compared to what's happening in some of the authoritarian you know governments around the world. It is a it is a silly message, and they do it again because they make money by taking a piece of things that are sold in the app store, not by selling advertising. And so it's ultimately you know a big piece of their bottom line that they're worried about, and not the privacy rights of you know U.S. citizens or anyone else abroad. 
Let's just stay with Apple for a moment because you've you know you've touched a button there and now I'm interested. Well, now now, now you're going to get Tim Cook deactivating my phone. Or something. <laughs> yes, that is the objective here. Yeah. Um, so to put China aside, right? I, I sort of take your point on China with Apple, but if we go to uh, Western markets and say US, Australia, UK, Europe, and so forth, is Apple's position on privacy and what they're doing around that in terms of how they trade people's or share people's information? Is it is there a difference between what Apple's doing in the West, let's say? Uh, versus Google or Facebook and the rest? Well, I mean, Apple doesn't make their money by and large from advertising. They have an advertising business, which frankly, I don't understand why they don't completely get rid of. They, they, you know, it'd be easier for them to say, hey, we don't do advertising at all versus having this very small percentage of their overall revenue stream and, and, and have to talk out of both sides of their mouth. You know, th- there's messaging within the, I, you know, within iOS in terms of, you know, do not track, you know, something that sounds very scary versus, you know, allow us to, you know, share your data with Apple so we can improve your experience, right? One of them that's sort of put in a positive light, one of them is put in a very negative light where, where they benefit, it sounds positive, where other companies might benefit, it sounds negative. It's, you know, it's, it's you know, like uh, polling someone and saying, you know, do you support, you know, such and such as person's uh, opinion that they should cure cancer or, you know, it's, it, it's very leading in the way they, they ultimately ask the question. And, and, and again, I just I I don't buy the story of they're doing this because they're this you know, you know they they care very much about privacy and, and all of these other things. They care about their bottom line. Frankly, they have a fiduciary duty to care about their bottom line. It's all you know PR marketing cover that gives them advantage over the you know the Facebooks and, and Googles of the world when it comes to their ecosystem. But let me ask you that you're, you're deep in the weeds on this. Um, you know what we're seeing with the opt-in rates. You're right; it might be a scary sort of uh, prompt from Apple to go, "Do not track me." But it's so far, I, th- I haven't seen the numbers in the last couple of weeks. But you know, we're sort of tracking somewhere between ten and fifteen percent, maybe twenty at best, of Apple users opting into the tracking. Does that not tell us? tell the industry something about where people are at in terms of their appetite for privacy and to be tracked when they have the option with a one button push to do something about it. Is there not some warning signals there or not? No, I don't think there are at all. I mean, I I could come up with a scary message that 90% of the public would say no to as well. You know, and it it could, you know, in, 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 in the US, California, forces companies to label their products if there's any carcinogen in any of their products. I I don't remember the the name of the law. Titled something, and so literally every every package comes with something that says this you know this coffee table may have a carcinogen in it, and obviously it's a very trace amount. So there's no no danger in anyone. Um, obviously, I'm not a doctor. Don't take any of this as medical advice. Uh, you know, thanks for the tip. I won't do that. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But like you know, if if when I went on Amazon, it gave me a pop up that says, "Do you want to buy this coffee table that's made of carcinogens?" I would say, "No, I do not want to buy this coffee table." Uh, right, it's it's a scary message. That's not something that I want. The fact of the matter is, you know, if you if you put a scary message in front of someone, they will say no to something. In the same way that if you put a really nice, friendly message, you know, would you like some place to put your coffee in the morning? My answer would be yes. I would like a place to put my coffee in the morning. Here's a coffee table for you. And so I, I actually don't think the response rates have anything to do with an informed consumer or informed intent or choice. It's you know, they A-B tested, what is the best way to get people to say no to this question? Let's put that front and center. And then let's people ask people over and over and over again. It's not surprising at all that people say, you know, ultimately opt out of it. Well, we're going to get down another rabbit hole right now, which is you mentioned the Californian privacy. Well, you mentioned California. California laws are my favorite. Yeah, yeah they are. Well, you're on the other side, so it probably doesn't matter as much for you. But <laughs> the, the what has happened uh, as a result of, say, the Californian privacy legislation that's come in, has it done anything significant and material to how the market operates? 
so far? Nah, I mean, there's been there's been adjustments. I mean, this is in, in the U.S. This is pretty well worn territory, not in advertising and marketing, but you know, California sets auto automotive emission standards, and because Detroit doesn't want to make different cars for California than they do the rest of the U.S., they you know they adhere to that. It's 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 a very similar concept. You know, CCPA was similar enough to GDPR that I think a lot of the hard work was done. Uh, because of the changes Europe made, you know, prior to CCPA com- coming in, I just get in there for for, for my listeners. CCPA stands for the California Consumer Privacy Act. Is that right, or what is it? Uh, that sounds about right. Let's go with that. Yeah, we've just redraft. We've just redrafted legislation. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, yeah, and and you know, I, I I've read CCPA, you know, front to back. As with any other good legal document, there's a lot to be interpreted, which is how the lawyers make money. And and there's frankly some things that don't make sense, and there's some things that make a ton of sense, and. You know, I, I think until it's litigated or until, you know... We need a precedent. Yeah, you, you, you need precedent. I actually think the same is true with, with GDPR and, and anything else as, as well. And I think you'll see some companies that are very conservative, you know, until that precedent exists. I think you'll see some companies that are very aggressive until that precedent exists. You know, again, by and large, I think it's well-intentioned, maybe not always the easiest thing to implement in, in the perfect way. And, and, and just like I'm not a doctor, I'm also not a lawyer... You know, where I think it ultimately ends up is is largely around organizations documenting, uh, you know, how what their practices are to comply with these regulations and then documenting, you know, the controls and making sure that they're actually following those controls. So in, in the U.S., we had a, a piece of legislation called Sarbanes-Oxley that happened after Enron um, uh, went bankrupt. And it was largely, you know, there's a bunch of controls in your business and every quarter make sure a senior executive says, yes, for, you know, for this accounting practice, I certify that we did the right thing. Or for this, you know, uh, supply chain thing, I certify that we did the right thing. I think that's where a lot of this privacy stuff goes is you, you sort of lay out, here are the things that we do to comply with the various laws and regulations. And then you put, you know, software and processes in place that make sure you're doing those things. And then a senior executive every quarter goes and initials something and says, yes, we did these things. And when the regulators show up, there may be an instance where something fell through the cracks, right? We're, we're, we're people, things aren't perfect. You know, this is this is complex stuff. But as long as that you're showing that you're, you know, attempting to, to you know, follow the regulations to the best of your ability and you have senior leadership signing off on it, um, you know, I think the regulators will have a favorable look of that. If you're like, nah, I just didn't do anything and figured it would, didn't matter, that's when folks are ultimately going to get in trouble. So if we just let me let me zip back to what we're talking about in around um, identity for a moment in, in the US right now, how would you summarize uh, the where brands are at in terms of identity and, and who is getting the most traction uh, in the market and where you think the market will land around identity? I know you've talked about, you know, needing to uh, move away from sort of the big proprietary systems. But is that the appetite for the market, though? Because this is the big thing in the end, they end up going historically now we've seen them go back to those that are big, safe and friendly which is the the incumbents like the Googles and so forth. Is that what, do you see, you see a break out of that at all? No, I, I mean, I think if you're placing bets, you think that Amazon and Facebook and Google and to, maybe to a lesser extent Apple, you know, ultimately win here because you're logged in in all those experiences. You're logged in on Facebook, you're largely logged in on Google and on Amazon and, and on Apple. And so they don't have an identity problem. The rest of us do. The, the, and, and, and the rest of us do. And so, you know, in some ways, do you see some sort of coalition or do you see an open framework? Again, one of these standards may be from a company like the Trade Desk that's sort of, you know, taking all of the non-walled garden content out there and trying to find a solution. Maybe, but it's, it's, there's technical challenge. There's, you know, getting, getting anyone in advertising and marketing degree to do anything is, is, is hard by itself. And so, 
I think the incumbents, you know, stand to stand to win this. I also think that's, you know, the, the interesting piece about, you know, some of the you know, anti-competitive uh, um, things that, you know, the research that's happening, you know, in, in various municipalities is, you know, by making things more privacy safe, in some ways they're advantaging themselves because, the, you know, the big platforms aren't, aren't the ones with the identity problems. And so I think you see a push and pull there. And I actually think Europe will be a really interesting barometer because, the, you know, they're clearly on the forefront of, 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 you know, consumer privacy. But I also say they're on the forefront of, of uh, you know, the investigations of, of anti-competitive behavior of all of these companies. And in some ways, those, you know, are, are, are pushing and pulling against each other. And so, I, you know, who, who knows? Does, does Europe regulate that there has to be some identity layer in order to, you know, make the open Internet, you know, more competitive with the walled gardens? Maybe, but what does that mean for privacy? Um, I, I, I think watching Europe over the next, you know, three to five years will, will, will really tell the tale of who's going to win and who's going to lose. If, if we cut everything back, though, in the end, um, you talk about needing uh, transparency in the data supply chain. Um, but in the end, does the market, does the buy side, to, to brands, to advertisers, to agencies, and so forth, do they do they care as, uh, as uh, about transparency enough to to shake it up. I think that's where the regulators will make them care about transparency. Like I, I just don't think European regulatory agency shows up on your front door and say, great, you know, how are you doing identity? Where did it come from for you to say, I don't know, I outsource it to someone else and I don't know the answers to your questions is, is a shitty answer. Um, and so I, I think there has to be some level of transparency and it could come in the form of standards. It could come in the form of a, a transparent marketplace where all the participants know who else is participating and sort of the rules of that marketplace. But I don't think business as usual is is going to get the job done going forward. So what do you make of – so we've talked about the, the alternative identity solutions. What are you hopeful for, Nick, versus what is the likely real, reality in how this plays out in a couple of years? What would you like to see first? Let's start with that one. What's the ideal here for the market? Well, I, I think the ideal, and I don't know that anyone actually knows how to do this, is how do you allow for um, you know some of the things that the advertising marketing ecosystem wants to do? showing um, personalized ads, measuring the effectiveness of those ads. Uh, you know, how do you do that while protecting uh, consumer privacy? And, and, you know, Flock from Google was, a, was an attempt to do that. And you know, didn't go down that well, though. No, did it? no, it did not, go, did not go down well at all. And, you know, they, they had some of the best thinking around how to do that. The fact of the matter, it's a, it's a very hard problem between machine learning and, you know, really start, you know, smart people and, and, and probably even some regulation and some controls that are put in the ecosystem around browsers and other things. I think you ultimately find a, a happy balance there. Like that, that's the ideal. I, I think, and this is true, literally everything in life, you know, the, the, the pendulum swings back and forth. And so we'll go, you know, we're, we're way too permissive with what companies can do. And then we'll probably go on the other side where we're way too restrictive with what companies can do. And hopefully we, you know, that that pendulum's arc becomes shorter and shorter and we find a happy medium and we, you know, we go forward from there. I also realize that technology changes quicker than any of us want it to. And so, you know, we may not be using web browsers in five years. Who knows? You know, the, the, the mobile phone may be supplanted by something, you know, entirely different ecosystem at some point. And so it's also you know, a moving target. We're not we're not just talking about the ecosystem we live in today. And the, you know, the consumer privacy challenges that are around that. We're also living with what's the ecosystem going to look like 5, 10, 20 years from now. Um, and if any of us were smart enough to answer that question, we'd go make a trillion dollars and, and, and be on the forefront of it. And so I, I don't know. I, what, I, what I usually tell brands, relax. Like, 
we will find solutions forward. They may not be as good as what we have today. They may be better than what we have today. Um, but incrementally, we will move forward and we'll figure things out. I, you know, there is a ton of fear, uncertainty, and doubt uh, in in the ecosystem. Again, I think that plays into the hands of Google and Facebook and and, and others because they can, in some ways, be the the safe haven where they don't have all the same challenges. But it's take a deep breath, look at what your objectives are, look at the solutions that they exist today, understand that the ecosystem is going to evolve from where it is today. And you know we'll all end up in a in a decent place, and and you know again things will change, not to the you know detriment of everything that we do day to day. You're almost turning into a motivational speaker here, Nick. Which is which is ironic because I'm I'm uh, as cynical as almost anyone you'll ever meet. Yeah, well, the the I guess where I'm where I'm trying to go with that is if you think about where um you know rel- chill out things are going to work out, but there are things there are action there is action that companies have got to take in the U.S. right now. I didn't quite get the answer is where. Where's the groundswell headed in terms of the alternative post-cookie, post in, in prepping for uh, regu- regulation or harder regulation? Where do you feel the market in the US in a broad sweep is headed right now? It may change. I won't hold you to it. Promise. I, I, I honestly don't. I think they're running in circles. I, and, that, and that's the problem. Not only is there not a, 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 you know, a winner that's been picked, there's no leader you know, out, of the, out of the gate. Like we're... The horses have been told to go and they're kind of standing there grazing on, on grass. And so I wish I could answer the question. I wish I could be like, this is this is where we're going to go. I uh, again, I it was, as a betting person, I would say the walled gardens win. And then, you know, as a, as a you know, a hedge, I would say the solution that's going to win if it's not the walled gardens hasn't been created yet. Right. Okay. Now you do though talk about how we're seeing sort of identity solutions and and products and services coming out of some of the bigger players that are Trojan horses for their for their other businesses. And you you talk about um, Amazon AWS, Amazon Web Services, and Snowflake as examples of using um, developing a product that's a Trojan horse for another product. Walk us through that, would you? Yeah, that's less around identity. It's you know they have data exchanges and and their data exchanges are meant to drive more usage of their core product, which is the Snowflake cloud or, or, or the AWS cloud. I mean, that's a, it's a great strategy. I don't, I don't, um, I don't fault them for it at all, but, you know, we also shouldn't be blind to the fact that, you know, they're, they're not altruistic in, in creating these products. They're trying to lock you into their larger solution. Um, you know, Narr- Narrative has a, has a data marketplace as well. And, and one of our differentiators is, you know, we're agnostic, like, you know, push the data in from wherever, pull the data out and push it wherever. Like, you know, we, we really want to be a mechanism to make everyone's life easier, not to just drive, you know, things to a, to another piece of, of business or technology that we have. We might as well just get to what how you are, uh, what Narrative is doing, and there's others like it, but what Narrative is doing, and you essentially say uh, Narrative is the, the data equivalent of an Airbnb and an Uber because you're an open, big trading market, big exchange. Explain it to us. Unpack that bit for us, Nick, what, what you're doing. The marketplace component is, you know, when you have customers, they want it to be easy to buy and sell. So to the extent that we have both buyers and sellers on our platform and they want to buy and sell to each other, we give them a mechanism by which to do that. The, the, the fact that we operate a marketplace is more that we control the mechanism of the marketplace, how pricing works, what can be bought and sold, you know, in the same way that when you list your place on Airbnb, you know, there's there's certain you know features of your house that you can put in. There's certain price points that you can put in. There's a, there's a way that you communicate with the person that's going to be staying in your house. Like they, they control the marketplace, but it's ultimately the the owner of the house and, and, and the renter that are that are that are working with each other. 
Um, and then we have a whole software solution that sits around the marketplace, which is if you're a buyer or seller, regardless if you want to use our marketplace or not, how do we give you the tools to make that easy? And that could be up to and including saying, I want to sell my data on the AWS data exchange, or I want to buy data from the Snowflake data exchange, you know, pull it into narrative, commingle it with some data that I'm buying on the narrative data exchange, and then push it into my data warehouse in uh, Google so I can go, you know, run some machine learning on it. And so, you know, in, in the same way we talk about the advertising ecosystem about these walled gardens, you know, that's kind of what Snowflake and AWS are in, in this scenario where they, hey, we've got, you know, end-to-end -end solution, including a, a data marketplace, and then that'll make it easier for us to use our, our, our other products. Whereas we're more of the open solution, which is, I think you should use AWS or Snowflake or, or, or GCP if, if you think those are the right solutions for you. But the data that, you know, you may want to bring into that or the data that you want to push out of that may live in another system. And so we can be Switzerland that sits be, you know, between all the cloud providers, all of the ad tech and marketing tech providers and, and creates a seamless data flow. Um, but to do it without, you know, forcing you into the rest of our stack. To be clear there, I mean, there are limitations even for you, what Narrative's trying to do in this open marketplace, because you can't necessarily do too much with the Google stack or Google's data. You can't, you don't bring any of those, those, those walled gardens you can't pull in. No, no. I mean, those companies are not selling data through us. Um, but if you are using Amazon as your data lake and you want to monetize that data, and you know the, the buyer of that data is using Snowflake as their you know analytics platform. Narrative can be that connective tissue that sits between the two. Um, you know, the, the, beyond the the transparency and sort of uh, being agnostic uh, value prop that we provide, a lot of it's around control. I mean, we we tell sellers sell your data to who you want to sell your data to, or don't sell your data, or price it the way you want to price it. it it's entirely up to you. What we're not doing is taking a position and saying, okay, we're going to take your data and we're going to decide what's best for you as a company. Same on the buy side. We're not going to, hey, we know what's best for you. We've prepackaged this thing. You should go buy it. Don't ask any questions. It's define what your data strategy is and use our software to enumerate your data strategy. Don't, don't have a middleman that, that thinks that they, they're smarter than you or they know better than you. Like here's, here's software that lets you go do the buying and selling. Without without having to outsource it to someone else, which is you know frankly exactly what happened in in, um, in in digital advertising. Ad networks used to sit between the publishers and, and agencies and say, "Hey, we know better. Give us the dollars. We'll go spend the money, you know, in the most effective way." This is pre-programmatic, right? Pre-programmatic, -pre and then programmatic came along and said, "Why are you working with this middleman? Why don't you just why don't we give you software programmatic that lets you buy and sell, Mr. Agency and Mr. Publisher?" but do it in a way where you're hands on keyboard and you control the entire strategy. And by the way, you don't have to give 60, 70, 80% of the profits to the middleman anymore. You can share it amongst yourselves. Yeah, but the middleman's still taking a clip on the ticket there, right? That's been one of the big things, um, you know, even the ad tech providers. The promise of programmatic and what programmatic has actually done are clearly two, two different things. Right, yeah. Um, but, the, you know, but, the, you know, but the promise was, let, let's just give a console to the buyers and sellers and let them trade programmatically uh, versus having someone in the middle. now. I also think the middlemen in, in, in the programmatic ecosystem are taking a much smaller cut. Um, and, and frankly, where they're taking a larger cut, it's largely because the buyers and sellers have said, hey, this is really complicated, so I actually want a managed service solution, which you know you, you could argue kind of goes back to looking like a, a, an ad network, but uh, hopefully at least there's, there's some transparency uh, involved in the middle. Well, as a publisher, I have different views than you, Nick, because I think 
you know, we won't get there because we'll be there for an hour and a half. But there has been some things that happen in the programmatic supply chain that have not necessarily uh, met the the promise of in 2011-12 when they started hitting me up and saying this is the new world and it's going to be fantastic. That's another conversation. I mean, and, and largely I would probably agree with 99% of the, the, the things that you would say around it. Good. All right. Well, we're friends again. Um, let's go. Um, in terms of the programmatic ad supply chain, you think that this is this is – Pretty much where data is going to go, though, we need you need a, a sort of a, a way to trade data in a in a, um, in a marketplace. It's really different to what it is now. Unpack that a little bit more because this is interesting. If you think there's a parallel track here between how data is going to be traded and how adverti- digital advertising was was started to be traded in programmatic ten years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a level of control and specificity and transparency that you need. So you know, you used to go to ad.com as a as a you know automotive OEM and they would say great I'm going to sell you a package of peop, you know of, of of inventory of people that we think are likely to buy a car right and I'm sure they would tell you it's going to be AOL autos and then some other stuff but you didn't really know what the other stuff was you didn't know how much of the other stuff was you didn't know if the other stuff performed it was it was largely a black box and you know they kind of managed you know giving you enough performance to keep you as a customer but you know throwing enough crap in in into the the inventory mix so they can make as much money as possible with data today it's like you're buying an audience here's an auto and tender audience like what a silly concept this is like you have no idea what goes into it you have no way to optimize it you're basically going and buying something off the shelf and, and praying that it works even worse than that all of your competitors are buying the same shit off the shelf and driving up your media costs. And not only are you paying for crappy data that doesn't provide any performance, you're actually creating competition for yourself and driving up the cost of media. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not to say that, you know, if given, given a, a way to buy data programmatically, all of that goes away, but you can certainly come up with more precise, more effective strategies if you can actually pull some levers and do interesting things versus going and buying something off the shelf and praying that it works, which is effectively the, the strategy today. And... I mean, the, 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 it's not funny. It's sad, frankly. Everyone talks about how third-party data doesn't work. Like, I have – I don't know if I've ever had a conversation with someone at an agency or a brand or a media buyer that actually thinks third-party data works. But they do it because it tells a story, right? The agency can go back to the brand and say, hey, I was looking for auto intenders. And the, the person at the brand can go to their boss and say, I don't know. We targeted auto intenders. I don't know why it didn't work. Um, that – really has to stop and, and the only way it gets fixed is, is you know it, what programmatic was really good at is it let you precision buy things i want to buy this one user in this one ad unit on this one publisher and i'm willing to pay 10 cents for it and i'm going to skip all this other bullshit because i think it's filler i think it, i think it's the laxative and i think we have to get to the same place with with data to, to ever make it effective that's if you accept that again what was being promised in terms of the delivery of an audience was actually the audience that was be- that had been delivered too by the way even in a programmatic context right so you can say we, we we bought this audience but the data behind it may say that the audience may be completely different or may not have landed exactly where it, where it was there is some challenges there well totally well and, and and a lot of the data comes from the programmatic ecosystem right a lot of people are building segments off of open rtb calls right and so you've got this bullshit set of impressions because of all the you know the misaligned incentives in, in programmatic and then you're building bullshit on top of that and then you're stepping on that bullshit with more bullshit to you know to make sure that you have the reach that you want i mean it's a wonder that any of it works at all i i, I would love to see someone do a study where and in, in, in this may bring us back to the privacy topic a little bit i would love to see someone do it do a study where they just you know flip a coin randomly and target someone versus use some of these third-party data segments and target someone. I bet they're equally as effective. At which point, 
if that's the state that data is going to be in, you could argue, well, well, let's their privacy is easy at that point. Like there's no privacy expectations of flipping a coin. You could have a three sided coin or a 10 sided coin if you want to be more precise, but it's all going to be bullshit at that point. And that's, you know, it just it's not sustainable. Uh, I've actually talked to agencies that, that we've had this conversation. They go, yeah, we know it's shit. We can't go do something better because then we have to go back to admit to our customers that what we were doing for the last 10 years was shit, which is a, an asinine comment, but one that I think is pretty pervasive throughout the, you know, throughout the, the ecosystem. And you're right. And, and agencies say that and marketers and brands are in the same boat. They have to go up there, up their leadership chain and, and, and put their hand up and go, we messed up as well. So they, there's, a, there's a kind of a resistance to that. Yeah, t- t- totally. And, and well, and I, and I, I'm sure someone else has this theory, but my favorite theory is that you know it, the, everyone predicts the demise of the agency. Agency's going away. Agency's going away. Agency's going away. The one reason the agency's not going away, in my opinion, is not because of this a massive value chain that they create. They're good for blame, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Like it does something doesn't work, and be like, yeah, blame the agency. We'll fire them and get another agency. If you don't have the agency as the CMO or whoever in the organization is actually in charge of it, you're to blame, and you don't want to put you know you don't want to put yourself on the line. Good points. Going back to what you talked about in, in the auto and tender uh, example, this is, gets us right back to the core of, of what we're talking about here, though, Nick, which is talk about Switzerland, you talk about transparency, but transparency versus convenience, so far, convenience has won hands down for the last 20 years. Is it going to change, i.e., can we get better and more robust, cleaner data in the system? I don't think they're mutually exclusive to each other, right? I, I think um, if you take something like an Uber, Right. The, the real innovation in Uber or Airbnb was both the transparency, but how easy it is. Um, Net, Netflix is a great example of this. And I actually I've had some conversations with, with companies that operate data exchanges and they say, you know, we think of our strategy as a Netflix strategy. You, you get the content and people will come. Right. And so in their mind, you, you get the data there and then the buyers will show up. And I've said to them, you know, Netflix's innovation was not the content. Um, you know, I, I, you, you can't argue that you don't need, you need content, right? For sure. Like you, you, Netflix doesn't work when there's no shows to watch. The, the innovation was you could find the content, you click one button and you're watching the show in 10 seconds. If I logged into Netflix and I found a show that I wanted to watch and I hit play and then a business development guy called me up and said, hey, you know, let's let's negotiate how much it's, co- it's going to cost you to watch this show. And then a lawyer faxed me a contract that we had a red line for a week and a half. Right. Like I, I'm not watching Netflix. Right. The, 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 the innovation is how easy it was. And so I think the trick with transparency is, yes, it has to be convenient as well. It has to be easy as well. And I I really don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think things complicated and, and so both easy and, you know, uh, transparent and, and, and having full control is not a trivial problem to solve. But I think those that solve it will tip the the market to say, hey, hey, I can have I can have my cake and eat it too. Which means then that if your scenario is right, then there is the possibility that the big walled gardens may have a, a bit of crimping. They may get their, their their armor chinked a little bit if if someone can come up with an open web system or an open an open alternative. Yeah, a hundred percent. And then then now we're back to the anti competitive issues because the, 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 those big walled gardens have so much control. And this isn't just true in advertising and marketing. It's like literally everything they do. If you think about you know how Amazon, you know, controls you know delivery in in the supply chain and in, in sort of their their finger over the FedExes and UPS and U.S. Postal Services of the world. Or you think about, I mean, Google. I mean, search is the starting point for almost everything for for a lot of internet consumers. It, there's there are challenges with um, going up against the walled gardens in, in the incumbents. 
And I think you know that's the the basis for a lot of the anti-competitive um, uh, you know questions that are that are being asked. But certainly they're not you know whatever. Thirty years ago, we would have thought IBM would have been the biggest, most successful company in the world by virtue of you know where they stood. That's not the case. No, no, no offense to my friends at IBM. And so, I, I think there are certainly ways for other competitors or other technologies to succeed. But I, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult with the the ecosystem as it exists. Okay, two more questions. I'm going to let you go back to. I don't know what time it is over there. It might be sleepy time for you, or drink. Or maybe it's beer time. With what we saw a decade ago, what we're seeing now with media owners and publishers, they're starting to sort of pile into these data plays, like you talk about, whether it be Live Ramp, whether it's Trade Desk, they're all trying to find identity solutions and and hash their own, build out their own um, user IDs, logged in ID uh, sort of strategy, and so forth. And as they move into this sort of open place with their open market with with data, what we saw a, a ten years ago with programmatic advertising the promise to publishers are oh, your yields going to increase you're going to do really well what the opposite happened that did not work right publishers are cutting 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 to, to cope but on the back of that what we found is that the, the publishers audience data was essentially hijacked by the middlemen the ad tech and the, the agencies they got the they got the, the through a cookie they worked out ah oh, there's the audience we want and we can find them somewhere else much cheaper right so it backfired in my view uh, for most publishers now when we get to the data play that's happening now is there a is there a risk here that publishers are going to have their data completely wiped by other parts of the market and in fact um sort of undo any potential that's that's possibly there what do you make of that yeah i i i mean possibly i mean data is complex because you know once someone has their hands on it, it you know they you can make an infinite number of copies of it, it you know that it's not it's not something that's easy to police outside of sort of you know uh, contracts and in, 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 in agreements. That being said, I, I think one of the you know big mistakes that's made is we tie data too closely to media. We think of it as a as a as an offshoot of media or related to media or value add on top of media. I think publishers should be thinking about data businesses completely orthogonal to their media business. You know, maybe somewhat related, but but go build. A data business. In, in fact, I would go a step further, and I've kind of you know argued this to some of my friends at SSPs, is that going and trying to build a better advertising mousetrap than Google and Facebook is is kind of folly. Um, but if you can go help publishers actually monetize at large, and so that could be through advertising, it could be through data, it could be through merch, it could be through events, it could be through other value-added services. Like like that's an interesting. Plays. I, I'm going to be a, a monetization platform for publishers and not tie that monetization entirely to, 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 to marketing and, and media. I think ultimately that's, that's where everyone has to go. I think there's challenges with how do you make sure the data is not commoditized and stolen. And uh, you know, I, I think thankfully we've stopped using the term data leakage largely as, as an industry, which is a, a good thing because it's a, it's a disgusting sounding yeah, word. Yeah, you don't like that leakage thing. Yeah, it's, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. It's, I, I, I don't fuck with leakage. Yes, yes. There, there are still challenges there, but I think publishers and, and really anyone that's running any type of business needs to think about um, diversifying their, their revenue line. And I think that's something we've done particularly bad on, on the digital publishing side is it's been all advertising you know, all the time. Maybe with the exceptions of you know some companies that have done events and, and, and things like that, but I, I think people need to take a broader based approach in terms of how they think about making money in their business. 
Are you seeing any cases of, of that happening from a publisher media own side where they're actually doing that? Is, is there is some early there's some early early eagles? I don't pay any attention if I'm being quite honest. They, everyone could be doing that, and I would be the last one to know. But I would still take credit for it because I, I've been saying this for five right. years. Good. Well put. Okay, final question for you is and and, and the specifics here because uh, would be great. We are we do have a little bit of um, clamour in this certainly in Australia about what happens. What do we do with ID? What do we do with tracking and targeting and so forth? post cookies what are the question what questions and actions should brand owners be asking right now i know you think there's a little bit of panic still out there but what are the specifics what should they be doing rather than going chill out there they have to do something right so what should they be doing who should they be looking at give us some guidance nick jordan the, the who i don't know I, I would be asking questions about sort of digging in how does the technology actually work what does the technology allow me to do? What does it not allow me to do? There, there, there's a bunch of tech out there these days that say, hey, you know, we will create these impenetrable bunkers where data can live, you know, in a privacy safe and fully anonymized way. Okay, how does my how do my existing tools plug into that? Can I continue to work with my other vendors? Like there, there, there's a, you know, what, what will be the impact of my business by using these technologies? Um, I tell people all the time, if, if, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. You know, there's people that come in and promise you the world. Ask them how it works. Ask them for proof points. Look at, look at your specific um, needs and, 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 and how you do business and, and understand how it's going to impact those things. This is all like any, anyone with an MBA would tell you what questions to ask. Like, look at your business. Look at how you make money. Look at what the challenges are, what the threats are. And, and then figure out how these new systems fit into that and then pick a winner. And, and that's, the, that's the thing that frustrates me about the panic is like, it seems very counterproductive. And, 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 and I'm sure this happens in every industry, but shit changes over time. Like, I, you know, travel agents used to be a thing. It's like, if you asked me to, you know, build anything in the real world, like if you asked me to, you know, figure out how to blow glass or something, I'd look at you like you had seven heads because I have no idea how any of that shit works. I think that's how most people that work in digital media and digital advertising think about their job is they actually don't know how it works. And so when someone tells them it's going to change, they're like, fuck, like we're screwed because I don't even know what we're doing today. And I, I, I think that's the larger problem that we have. And it kind of goes back to we've made it so complicated. No one knows how it works anymore. Or, you know, Ari Paparo is the only person that knows how it works. And so Ari Paparo is going to have to go solve all of our problems. Like that's not a great solution for us to you know, be in. And in the short term, that means the easy out is to go with a convenient choice that's put put in front of you as a as a prepackaged solution, which is why we end up getting or just whine about it. Seems to be what the common wisdom is today. Okay, so I'm busting to ask you to break it down further, but we're out of time. The the next twelve months, um, what are the hot spots on your in your view? Where are where are the really the the, the big pivotal points that are going to either make break or shift the industry? What does Google actually do? I mean, they push back the, the deprecation of the cookie 18 months. I'm not convinced they're actually going to do it. You know, will Flock evolve? Will they come up with something else? Um, you know, what does the anti-competitive landscape look like? Are there lawsuits either from, you know, uh, attorneys general in, in the U.S. Or, 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 you know, national or multinational regulatory agencies you know, again, I will go back to, to Apple and in China because I don't think they can have one policy in one part of the world and then go try to sell a story in, in, in the rest of the world. Um, and then it's sort of, you know, the evolution of other technologies. You know, again, I, I don't think we're, we're living on a, a static playing field. Um, I, I think the small, I think the 
will it be UID two or be the live ramp? Like I, those are like who 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 cares in some ways? Like there, there will ultimately be an answer to, to those questions. But to be fair, in this market right now, companies have got to make decisions to prep for this supposed end in eighteen months. So they've got to make some calls. So what do they do? Again, look at their business. Look at the people that are trying to sell them solutions and pick the best solution for whatever they're trying to do. Like so, if they make the decision for live ramp. And they go with the black box, black box technology that you say is, mm, there's no transparency in that. That's better than no decision. So do it. Absolutely, a decision is better than, than no decision. And, 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 I, and I think that's where people get caught up is everyone, everyone thinks there's a right and wrong decision. Like there's choices, like make a choice. Um, and if you're wrong, be ready to change your choice. Or if the market all chooses something and the impact of that is there's another walled garden that controls a big part of the ecosystem, then that, you know, that the market has chosen. Um, the, 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 everyone being paralyzed because there's so much uncertainty, like life is full of uncertainty. Like we just lived through 18 months of uncertainty and, you know, we got through it and we made hard decisions as, as individuals, as governments, as people, but we made decisions and we move forward. Okay. Final question is the appetite for some, from the market for something like a narrative where it's an open, transparent exchange of all sorts of different data, data options. Is that getting any traction in the US at least? And you're coming to Australia, aren't you? Yeah, we, we, we are doing some things in Australia a lot. So a lot of our suppliers are, are, are global. And so there, you know, there's an Australian component. So yeah, we're getting, we're getting a ton of traction. I, We've had the, the last three quarters have been the best quarters in, in, in the business's history. We just launched a new product called Data Shops, which we're calling the Shopify of data. So if you're a company that's trying to bring data to market, you can basically spin up a, a data store with your own brand, your own, uh, you know, your own uh, face in, in the matter of, of, of minutes. So this is what you're saying publishers should do. This is the sort of thing you're talking publishers could do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and we are seeing publishers do it. And, and the idea is sort of take take it back, you know, take your data strategy back, but also give your data a brand. The people treat data as if it's this nebulous thing and ones and zeros and it's in the cloud. Like, market it, like build a brand around it. You know, no, no problem. Like if you were selling a pair of jeans, like you would get a cool logo, you would go on Instagram and you would promote the shit out of it. People just think they can say data and suddenly they're going to have a, you know, a, an eight figure business on their hands. That's just not how it works. There's, there's no free lunch. Like take this asset that you have and go build a business around it. And it's my same frustration with people that don't know what to do around identity is like, go make a decision, build a business plan around it, execute against that plan. If you're wrong, change the plan and move forward. It's the it's the hemming and hawing or thinking that everything's going to be easy is the is the piece that that kind of drives me crazy. I don't sound like I don't sound like a motivational speaker anymore. At least I got that going for me. Not anymore. No, actually, yeah, you know, and, and slightly slightly cranky, which is good too. I like I like that. I am I am I am a curmudgeon. So you talk about three quarters getting momentum. So there is an appetite. Then you're saying, at least in the U.S., for an alternative sort of data strategy that goes beyond walled gardens and the obvious players. This is the because this is the big question, right? Can can a, a more open market uh, actually operate uh, with those big big giants in play. You're saying that there is some good traction happening. There's good momentum. I think I think the answer to that question is there's no doubt that it will happen. And we have seen it happen in taxis with Uber and Lyft. We've seen it happen in travel with online travel agents, and then directly to to you know hotels and airlines. We've seen it happen. Um, with like a Robin Hood in financial services, like like markets get more efficient. They don't continue to stay inefficient, and they don't you know continue to have middlemen that that operate them. Data, in the grand scheme of things, is a fairly immature market, right? I mean, we, right. we weren't having these conversations twenty years ago. I would argue the technology is evolving faster than maybe they have in travel or 
you know, or hospitality or, or other things, but that, that's what happens to markets. So wh whether it happens this year or it happens five years from now, there's going to be a big change in terms of how data is, is used across the enterprise. Nick Jordan, co-founder of Narrative. I'm going to chill out a little bit after this conversation, not get so worried about what's going on in the world. So thanks for joining and, uh, and stay safe. It sounds like it's better over there we're, we're in lockdown by the way you guys are a little bit better we're 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 up and down there's we have good weeks and, and bad weeks we, there was a beginning of the summer it looked great and now we're back to you know masks and, and and sheltering in place all right stay safe thanks nick jordan thank you this mi3 audio edition was presented by paul mcintyre that's more producer nick slater music by matt dwyer for more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.